Well, it's good to be here today. We pray for you regularly around the corner at Logie's, and we really do appreciate the partnership that we have together in the gospel. Now, if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Our passage this morning is the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 5, page 1032 in my Bible. That might not be any use to you. Um, Though, in fact, if you're using one of the church Bibles, I think page numbers are the same. Luke chapter 5, the heading in the NIV there is the calling of the first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees And said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Amen. This is God's word to us. Now I suggest you keep that passage open in front of you in your Bible so you can make sure I'm not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Now this morning, and in fact this evening, both of our passages are situated around the Apostle Peter. He is a great character to look at, very complex, makes an extremely interesting character study. But, of course, as interesting as Peter may be, neither of these passages are primarily about Peter or any of the other disciples for that matter. But like the whole of the Bible, this is about God. This chapter is no exception. Here there is a lot we learn about Jesus and in particular a lot we learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, about what it means to follow him. Now there are sometimes temptations as we read through passages like this to sort of read ourselves into it, uh, to wonder how we compare with different characters and weigh ourselves up against them. Well, we've already said that this is about God rather than Peter. But as we do go through and read again, we need to remember that even Peter himself was very different in a way that sets him apart from you and I. Peter was, of course, an apostle one of the twelve, a unique role in that, and a unique role in the leadership of the early church, not to mention his role, of course, in writing part of the Bible. But, all that said, there are some things which are common to every Christian, 
And it is some of those basics of what it means to be a disciple that will come out as we read through this passage again this morning. These are fundamental lessons that every Christian must come back to time and again to remind ourselves who we are, what we are doing in this world, what it means to call ourselves followers of Jesus. And beginning of the year is as good a time as any to do that. The plan this morning is to read through the passage again closely. And as we do, to notice what we're being taught here about discipleship, what we are being taught about the meaning of following Jesus. So if you have your eyes down there in the passage, we'll read again from the beginning, verse 1 of Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or Lake Galilee, as it's sometimes called, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that is Simon, or Simon Peter, or just Peter. This is all the same man. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So for Peter, the day starts out much like any other, albeit after a bad night of fishing. He is sat there on the shore mending his nets, probably pretty tired after a whole night of fishing, uh, probably feeling a bit grumpy as well after having come back with nothing, having brought back empty nets. And at this point, as Peter is sat there, his life is very much tied up with his job. Uh, His identity is as a fisherman, uneducated, certainly not a biblical scholar or a philosopher of any sort. Uh, Peter is a common fisherman. And with that, fairly quiet and predictable life. But, of course, all that is about to be turned on its head when Jesus steps into that life. The turning point in Peter's life is approaching, and it is no accident, no accident that Jesus happens to be teaching the crowds just where Peter was cleaning his nets. Crowd gathering around, there is this excitement in the air, there is a hunger for the Word of God. They can all see that clearly there is something different about Jesus. He has got an authority and an authenticity that the other teachers don't have. And so all the crowd are moving in around him, and Jesus therefore makes use of Peter's boat as a kind of floating pulpit. Uh, No radio mic or sound desk to run it through. Um, So that out they go, a little way from the shore. Jesus sits down, begins to teach from Peter's boat. But next, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. So this is Jesus coming right 
into Peter's world. Not just the Sunday service, or it's the Saturday service as it would have been, but right into Peter's life, into his everyday life. Peter is this professional fisherman. Uh, He knows the lake like the back of his hand. Fishing is what he knows. He's been out there all night when the water's cool, and even then hasn't been able to catch a thing. Here, Peter is on his own patch, in his own boat, in his area of expertise. And so for Jesus to then come along and tell him to go back out and let down those nets in the deep water is, to say the least, a strange request as far as Peter's concerned. But because you say so, Jesus, I will do it. Because you say so, Jesus, I will do it. This is the beginning of faith. Uh, Peter has got some way to go yet, of course. But what a wonderful thing to be able to say. My past experience tells me that this isn't going to work. But because you say so, Jesus, I'll do it. What's the alternative? I suppose saying, my past experience tells me this isn't going to work, and even though you say so, Jesus, I won't do it. Now, I doubt any of us would ever actually say it like that, but we can become very good at reasoning ourselves out of God's commands. And Peter does start to do that a bit. He gets his word in that they've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But he doesn't let that stop him. Let me ask you this. What is going to hold you back in your walk with the Lord? Well, for one, stopping short at our own reasoning and not trusting him. You know how the old hymn goes? I don't know if you sing it here. Trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus and to trust and obey. It's true. Don't know about you, but I can keep inventing excuses until the cows come home. Endless excuses about why I've got some legitimate reason to not obey the Lord in this particular circumstance. How does it go? Jesus, it's all well and good making demands on my life. Nice Ideas in theory, but this is the real world. I don't know, maybe if you knew the people that I have to deal with, Jesus, if you knew what it was like in my staff room, I don't know. It'll sound different for each of us, and of course, by definition, there will be different commands from God that will sit easier with us than others. But it is the response which is effectively saying, when you boil it down, Jesus, I know better than you on this one. Contrast that with Peter's obedience here. Because you say so, Jesus, I will do it. That's my reason. It's not because I can see it all perfectly, I've got everything figured out. But because you say so. Simple faith. 
It is simple trust, but of course it's not faith against reason, not at all. Um, even in these early stages, Peter's faith is based upon the recognition that there is more to Jesus than just being a good teacher. And so he obeys him. And what happens next changes Peter's life forever. Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Enough fish to sink two boats. Can you picture in your mind what that would have looked like? Enough fish to sink two boats. You don't just get a catch of fish like that. Peter and the other fishermen knew that only too well. That without doubt this wasn't luck. He didn't just happen to put the net over the boat at the right time and, hey, what are the chances the biggest catch they've ever seen just happens to come swimming into their nets? Not at all. Peter sees this catch of fish and he understands what this shows about Jesus. And it hits him hard. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter sees this catch of fish and it overwhelms him. There's more to Jesus than he previously reckoned on. Who can control how swarms of fish move in the water? Who could possibly perform a miracle like that? Who? Except as John 1 describes, the one through whom all things were made. The one who sustains the whole universe by the power of his word. And the penny starts to drop for Peter. God is standing next to him in the boat and at that moment he stops still let me ask you this fairly personal question um, but how do you relate to Peter's reaction there because it will tell you a lot about where you stand with God can you relate to that feeling before God He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Do you know what that's like? Can you relate to that feeling? I hope you can. Um, Because there's a line of thought that goes, yes, I can see what he means. Maybe Peter was a sinful man, and maybe I'm not perfect either. But hey, nobody's perfect, are they? Um, In fact, I'm doing a lot better than most. I could even give you a long list of people who are far more sinful than I am. As soon as our thoughts ever start to go down that line, then alarm bells should ring. Um, None of us have any standing before God. 
None of us have any right to be in the presence of the Holy One. Peter is well aware that he has no business at all to be in the presence of such holiness. Go away from me, Lord, he says. I'm a sinful man. Now, there's no shortage today of advice about just having a bit more self-esteem. But far from thinking, yeah, God could really use someone like me, Peter becomes aware of his sinfulness. He sees the gulf between himself and Jesus. Now not just calling him Master, but Lord. As well as seeing Jesus in a different way, he's also now seeing himself in a different way because he's seeing himself in relation to Jesus. Much like when Isaiah encountered God saying, I am a man of unclean lips. Or Abraham before him, Lord, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Of course, what Peter desires and needs is to be with Jesus. But before we're ready to follow him, we need to see that we're not worthy to be with him. We need to recognize that gulf that exists between us and him, that we don't belong in his holy presence. And Peter recognizes that he is a sinful man and he falls down at Jesus' knees. Next, as we read on in verse 9, if you're following along, verse 9. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So what's Jesus' reply as Peter falls at his feet? He says, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, actually, Peter, you're not that bad. You're not so sinful. Cheer up. But neither does he say, get out of my presence, you filthy sinner. Or even, here's what you've got to do to make it up and earn your way back to me. No, Jesus says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be fearful, Peter. As Hebrews 12 describes it, you have not come to the mountain burning with fire, you have come to Mount Zion, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He has come to Jesus. He is there at the feet of Jesus. Yes, Peter is a sinful man. Yes, there is an unassailable gulf to overcome. But Jesus will overcome it. And isn't that what it means to be a Christian? To be able to come to God because Jesus has done what is needed to bring us back? From now on, you will catch men, he says. That is, men and women. From now on, Peter will be part of Jesus' mission in this world. Bringing people in. 
being part of Jesus' rescue mission to sinners like Peter, to sinners like you and me. Bringing them home to God. Peter, he's saying, is going to be part of this work, as will every Christian in some way, by definition. Now let me ask you another question. Uh, Why do you think Jesus can be so sure that Peter is going to be this fisher of men? How can Jesus be so sure? Was it because Peter was such a great success that he would clearly have natural aptitude towards getting results? Well, hardly. Um, Peter had failed before and he'd fail again. We read that passage a little bit earlier of Peter's denial that would come. Jesus knew all of that and he called him just the same. Jesus knew what he was doing. That's because being part of Jesus' mission means being a partner in his work. His work not ours. We point people to Jesus, the one who is the real catcher. So that later on when we come to the passage in Acts that in fact we'll be looking at this evening where Peter is there preaching on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 come to faith all in one day. Enormous numbers. um, Numbers really of the kind of this catch of fish here. I do wonder if at that point on Pentecost, Peter saw all those numbers and remembered remembered back to what had happened at this lake in Galilee. That he saw all of those people coming to faith, all those 3,000, and knew that it wasn't because he was just so able, but because he was joining in the work of the one who is able to do the unimaginable like bringing up enough fish to sink two boats or bringing 3,000 people all to their knees, confessing their faith in the Savior. Peter's right to say that he is a sinful man, but it is for sinners that Jesus has come and then he sends us back out to tell others Lastly, look at the response of Peter and the others to all that's happened. Verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Which is absolutely the most appropriate response. that enormous catch of fish that is sitting there, all that represented their security, their jobs, their past lives, the biggest catch they have ever seen, but they leave it all behind. Sure, the seagulls would have had a feast. They left the catch all behind Because what that miraculous catch of fish showed them about Jesus was 
far, far more important than the fish themselves. Having their eyes opened to the real Jesus changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. See, I can remember having a conversation with a Christian classmate at school a number of years ago. Um, I think I was saying to him, well, yes, of course, if Jesus is really who he said he is, um, if Jesus really did what he did, if Jesus really is God, well, yeah, then of course, the most logical thing to do would be to give up everything and devote your whole life to him in every way. Now, I could say that quite assuredly and confidently at the time, because then I was quite sure that there wasn't the slightest chance of it being true. I was quite sure it was all nonsense. And now that I'm a Christian, well, of course it's easier to say than to do. But the logic still holds. It's still true. It does all hinge upon who Jesus is. C.T. Studd famously said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus is who he says he is, then giving up everything to follow him is the most reasonable and appropriate thing to do. If he's not, then why would you bother? You want me to give up everything to follow someone who was just a nice example? Give up everything to follow somebody who had a few useful insights? Uh, Try telling that to Christians in Iraq right now who are having their churches bombed. Or Christians in Burma. Or any number of places, in fact, where following Jesus puts you seriously in harm's way. Why would you bother persevering at all if Jesus is just a mere good teacher? But when you have encountered the real Jesus, when you know the truth that he is God indeed, then things take on a very different perspective. Jesus says, follow me. And he refuses to lower the cost. But nothing is too great to sacrifice. Everything is worth it. Everything is worth it. For these disciples here, it meant giving up their job to leave and follow Jesus. I don't know, you might not be called to give up your job in order to follow Jesus, but It at least has to be on the table, doesn't it? Um, Everything is up for grabs. Jesus makes demands upon every and any part of your life. So we must ask ourselves the question, what wouldn't I be prepared to give up for the sake of following Jesus? What wouldn't I be prepared to give up? Where would I draw the line? Not that, Jesus.
That's where it gets uncomfortable. That's where we start to root out our idols. We'll always be tempting to put our faith in a compartment and separate it out from the rest of our lives. But it doesn't work like that. Jesus interrupts Peter's whole life and turns it all on his head. Now Peter sees everything differently, so much so that giving it all up in order to follow Jesus makes perfect sense. So, in these early stages of Peter's walk with Jesus, we're beginning to see some of the key features of what it means to be a disciple. Some of the key features of what it means to follow Jesus. There is the obedience. Don't see it, Lord, but because you say so. There is the recognition of sinfulness, knowing that you don't deserve to be one of God's people. There is the calling, realizing that being a follower of Jesus is not a private thing, but that it means being part of his gospel mission in this world. And then there is the response. The active and purposeful decision that you have to make that there is nothing more important than following Jesus. Now, it's not to say that that list is exhaustive uh, or that Peter now has everything sorted. There are hard lessons to learn and relearn. Some people it hits suddenly, for some it's a more gradual process. But either way, to follow Jesus has to mean that we always come back to these basic truths, that we hear again his voice saying, follow me, and that we trust him, that he will lead us home. Amen. Or shall we pray together? Our Lord and God, we thank you that you come to us, that you speak to us, that you show us what you are like. Most of all in Jesus, the exact representation of your being. Our Father, how we thank you that you do not leave us to wander in the darkness, but that you have sent your Son. We pray you give us eyes that would be wide open to see yourself, that we would see the truth, that we would hear your voice and we would obey, that we would know that we do not belong to be with you, that we are by nature sinners, that we cannot do anything to work our way back, but that you have done that for us in Jesus. We pray we would trust in that truth of the gospel, that he is the propitiation for our sins, that he has done everything necessary that we may have the right to be called sons of God, adopted into your family. Lord, what wonderful privilege these, these are. And we pray that as we thank you and praise you for them, we would also hear your call to be part 
of your gospel mission in, the, in this world. That we would be prepared, whatever the cost, as you call us to others who need to hear this life-giving gospel truth. Whatever part we may take, we thank you that you are always in every way worth it. That because Jesus Christ is God, there is nothing that you might call us to do that you are not worthy of. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit is at work in your people, that you enable us to do what we could otherwise never do. Help us to trust in that ability and that power and that strength that you give us through your spirit and help us to respond in obedience and worship and love. We ask you all these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.